my fellow fallible humans. This is the Red Roof Recovery Show, a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavior addictions. And it's not just about addictions at all. It's about life. I'm your host. My name is Tanya McIntyre, and I really appreciate you spending the next 30 minutes with me as I share the experience that I have acquired over the years through my own recovery from drugs and alcohol. And actually, it's mental health disorders. I'm going to start reframing the drug alcohol addiction to mental health disorders because that's what addiction is. It's a mental health disorder. First, though, I want to take a moment to thank my friend, my mentor, a very talented singer, songwriter, musician. His name is Russell Allen Scott. He wrote this beautiful piece of music called Greatest Bravery. And it's such an appropriate theme song for this show because it has taken great bravery for me to come out of the proverbial closet to talk publicly about my drug and alcohol addictions. But like I said, this program is about far more than addictions. It's about life. And the messiness of life includes lots of mental health illnesses and disorders like addictions. I use a variety of tools and techniques that I'll be sharing with you on each episode of the Red Roof Recovery Show. And there are literally hundreds of tools that you can use to manage life and recovery. The key is to keep looking until you find something that clicks for you to open the doors for you because we're all different animals. And what works for me may not work for you. And you need to just keep looking because there are hundreds of solutions. So the task for you is to keep opening those doors, looking for solutions that work for you. A key for me when it comes to managing my mental health disorders like addictions is acceptance. I know you hear me talk about this acceptance key a whole lot. And on this episode of the Red Roof Recovery Show, I'm going to be exploring this idea of acceptance. What I've learned in my recovery journey over the years is that I am not my addictions. There were not many pills that were too hard for me to swallow back in my days of drugging, but accepting that I was not my addictions was definitely a hard pill for me to swallow, especially because society's opinion of me and anyone who is challenged by a mental health disorder like addiction is that we are flawed, that our character is defective, that we are morally bankrupt. That's hard to take. And when dealing with life's adversities and general messiness, we can often get bogged down by lots of heightened emotions that come from not only dealing with the mental disorder afflictions, but also from dealing with the discrimination from society, because you may not be fitting into the accepted ideal of humanity. And we humans actually seek drugs. It's just part of our humanity. We seek drugs. Do you know why? <laughs> because we want to reduce pain and fulfill pleasure. Lots of people are addicted to caffeine, but caffeine and tea and coffee, that's become commonplace. Most of us consume it every day. It's for the pleasure-producing effects that it offers. It keeps us motivated and productive, or so we've been told and think. So that addiction to caffeine, it's societally acceptable now. We have kind of put our stamp of approval that everybody can consume caffeine, and that's acceptable. And even though we know a lot of caffeine is not good for us, but it rarely sends us into a state where our life becomes unmanageable because we're drinking too much coffee. 
Although I do know when I've tried to give up coffee for any length of time, uh, after a couple of days, I start to get headaches from the withdrawal symptoms. So it is a powerful drug. These accepted ideals of humanity keep changing, though. And that depends on which government is holding the reins of power and which government controls the narrative. For instance, we are told to follow the science. We're hearing that a lot, follow the science. But which science are we to follow? There are lots, there's lots of scientific evidence now to show that cannabis is less harmful than alcohol. And even LSD is shown to be less harmful than alcohol. The question to ask then is, why is alcohol legal and the other less harmful drugs were or are illegal, with cannabis now being legal in most countries? So my training as a journalist for a couple of decades, uh, when there was still some integrity in journalism back in the 90s, um, what I did learn is that you need to ask the deeper questions. My experience being a Queen's Park reporter was that all of the politicians I spoke to, they all kind of went to this same school to learn how to not answer a question. So as a journalist, it was my job to ask the deeper questions, to try to get the answers that society was looking for. What I've learned is that politicians are terrified of being perceived as soft on drugs. So whatever lobby group is pushing the hardest drug agenda around election time will be prevailing, guaranteed. And the drug agendas are set by the people who will benefit the most. So ask yourself, who is benefiting the most? And it is normally always pharmaceutical interests that have valuable patents. So we know that addictions were recognized already as a worldwide epidemic for the last decade or more. So now we're left to pick up the pieces of this pandemic agenda during which addiction and suicide rates have tripled. Many suicide lines are stretched to the limits now. Many people in crisis are being met with voicemail. The question to be asking is why our governments and why our society as a whole is not doing more to address a problem that is growing out of control with triple suicide and addiction rates. While directing a narrative of fear around a virus that has a 99% survival rate for healthy people. It's a good question to ask and to get answered. And it never hurts to follow the money. So through all of this, in order for me to maintain my sanity and to live a sober life, I've had to learn to develop my self-worth and my value independent from outside circumstances, perceived realities, and society's opinions of me. And it has not been an easy task. We live in a culture that values achievements, especially around financial and professional achievements. And once we achieve that status, society then tells us that we're gonna be happy as a result. And if you're not happy as a result of achievement, then there's something wrong with you. Until, of course, you go out and buy something or take something to feel better. It's a cycle of consumerism and hypnotism fed by the marketing monster of mainstream media. So how do we develop tools that can help us to develop our self-worth and our value outside of circumstances, people's opinions, and social programming?
Our Western culture teaches us that achievement is the key to a happy life. We're taught that life is a zero-sum game where there are winners and there are losers. Winners are happy, losers not so happy. Lots of research studies have shown us that successful people are no happier than anyone else. And actually, quite the opposite. Quite often, the stress that comes with maintaining that level of success is actually causing a great deal of unhappiness for many. That state of unhappiness can lead to chronic diseases and mental health disorders like addictions. So I want us to delve a little bit deeper. Take a look at that social construct that has us believing that life is a zero-sum game where there are winners and there are losers. Winners happy, losers unhappy. Is it true? Hmm. Well, we know that life is complicated. We know that to be true, absolutely. And people are complicated. There's no simple solution for complex problems of life and all the complexities of the adversities that come with life and all of the messiness that comes with the maze of life sometimes. So let's take a look at the history of our species for a moment. Because we didn't use that winner-loser philosophy when we were evolving in our humanity. Our successful development and evolution did not happen because we were pursuing achievement on any level, really. Our success as Homo sapiens was built on cooperation and unselfish concern for the welfare of others. But we have lost that altruism, unfortunately. We've evolved beyond our tribes and our groups. We're now living in a world of 8 billion people where there are now countless tribes and groups and all of them are competing against each other. It's now estimated about 25%, a quarter of the people who reach the top of that corporate ladder of achievement and its success, as we define the ultimate achievement of corporate success, they become uh, CEOs for the most part, and it's proven, scientific evidence now shows that a lot of the tendencies are actually psychopathic. So by extension, CEOs that are earning sometimes 300 times the amount of the workers that they're overseeing. So CEOs are largely psychopathic in their tendencies, even just by virtue of getting to the top of their corporate ladder. So think about this for a minute. CEOs earn 300 times more than the workers they're overseeing. When you crunch those numbers, the actual influence that the majority of CEOs actually have on the overall success of a corporation is very minimal. It's actually shockingly minimal. So it's really hard to swallow that fact that a CEO can earn 300 times more than the workers that they are overseeing. It's just not a sustainable reality in, it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable equation in any reality. You'll hear me talking about Dan Price. I absolutely love this story and I'm just gonna give you the basic overview of Dan Price and his brother. They started a credit card company back in 2004. They were inspired to do this because they witnessed the lack of competition among big credit card corporations that were charging excessive commissions on sales procured by small businesses. Now remember, small business is the backbone of every society. Small business is the number one employer. 
So we have to really keep this in perspective that small businesses were suffering under excessive commission rates charged by big credit card corporations. So Dan and his brother recognized this and they created this company and it's called Gravity. And Gravity enjoyed 10 years of growth to the point where Dan, as the CEO, was earning over a million dollars a year. And most of the workers were earning just a little bit over minimum wage. In 2014, Dan realized that a number of his workers were experiencing a great deal of stress because they weren't earning a living wage. So Dan decided in all his wisdom that he was gonna reduce his million dollar income. He gave his workers a minimum wage of $70,000 a year. Now this was back in 2014. He encouraged other entrepreneurs to do the same and he was ostracized and belittled and criticized. Everyone said he was crazy. Dan said that establishing that $70,000 minimum wage was a moral imperative for him. It wasn't a business strategy. And he continues to defend that wisdom behind that decision because he says it will not only help him achieve his long-term goals of transforming the business world, he said, I want the scorecard that we have as business leaders to not be about money, but instead to be about purpose, impact, and service. Wow, what a novel idea. He said, I want those things to be the things that we judge ourselves on. So if we take that existing paradigm of that zero-sum game being correct, we would expect that big jackpot lottery winners would be laughing all the way to the bank with their winnings, right? But we know that the studies and the evidence has indicated that the sudden acquisition of wealth with lottery winners often creates much more problems and comes with a lot more unhappiness for a lot of those so-called winners. So the zero-sum expectations that our society imposes upon us can actually feed a multitude of unhealthy emotions and behaviors. We often attach our value and our self-worth to our appearance and our desirability as partners, especially in this era of social media and selfies. Society dictates how we should look and how much we should weigh. We've created a multi-billion dollar diet industry that simply does not work. In fact, I think the diet industry is actually feeding the tens of millions of people who are afflicted with eating disorders. And I get a lot of people uh, on my addiction recovery meetings, I'm a facilitator with SMART, self-management and recovery training. I've been doing this work since 2018. And we don't discriminate on your addiction because addictions, I think, affect everybody the same way. It tickles the same part of the pleasure points in our brain. So it doesn't matter if you're addicted to gambling or sex or pornography or shopping or just the internet in general, if you're addicted to food, drugs, alcohol, it doesn't matter what you're addicted to. We're all affected the same way. There will never be any shortage of negative emotions that come with life and addictions and all the other myriad mental health illnesses and disorders that we deal with. I've learned, though, that it's so important to separate my self-worth 
from those negative feelings that feed the countless unhelpful emotions. I call it the committee in my head. It's that negative narrative loop that just runs and runs and runs and runs and it never shuts up. So what I love about cognitive behavior therapy, what I've learned over my years in sobriety, is that I need to intercept that negative narrative. I needed to become the gatekeeper of my mind. I needed to stand at the gates of my mind to say, eh, eh, not allowing that in. I'm going to be selective with the information that I'm absorbing into my mind. So it's going to feed my health and my well-being. Our value as a human being is totally separate from our behaviors. Your value, your self-worth is separate from everything and everyone around you. I love the tool of unconditional self-acceptance. In my meetings, I'm always talking about how important it is to spend time on acceptance, not only unconditional self-acceptance, but unconditional life acceptance and unconditional other acceptance. I'm on board with French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre when he says hell is other people. So this unconditional other acceptance tool is a regular go-to for me to not murder people. <laughs> so the tool of unconditional self-acceptance teaches that who we are is all that really matters. And it helps us define some elemental truths about ourselves. So answer the question, who are you? I posed this question to the rational emotive behavior therapy expert, Dr. Walter Matvichuk, during an interview recently. And I said, do you encourage your patients to answer the question, who am I? And he said, absolutely not. He said, you're Tanya, I'm Walter. And he said, that's it. We need to start judging ourselves on things that we can rate. So it's just, it's too deep a question to say, who am I and what are you basing it on? But what we do know is that we are not what society dictates to us that measures us as a human being. We are not our job. We are not our bank account. We are not defined by how many people like us or even if anybody likes us. People suffering with mental health disorders, like addictions, often feel judged. Mm -hmm. We can't stop anyone from judging us or thinking about us in a certain way. That is completely out of our control. That's why I love that unconditional self, or unconditional other acceptance where we use the metaphor of the hula hoop. So you imagine that visual, you know, of that little plastic hoop around your waist. And I even extend it as a dome. I, I call it my control dome. What is within my control and what is beyond my control? My daily mantra is, what can I do from where I am with what I have today? That's all we got. So keeping in mind what's beyond our control can be a very helpful uh, tool to use when your, your thoughts are spinning out of control. Your only responsibility to yourself is to do your best and to truly believe that your best is good enough for you. Dwelling on any other expectation, judgment, or outside criteria is a recipe for unhappiness and a threat to your health, both physical and mental. And I'm really liking what I'm seeing as our medical community evolves. We're starting to finally combine the two and stop separating the mental health, physical health, because they are totally connected. I really hope that we get to a place 
where it's going to be just all one thing. We're not going to be asked about our mental health conditions or our physical health conditions. We're just going to be asked about our overall physiology, which includes everything from head to toe. So are we irrationally thinking that we need more external validators to be happy? So do, you, do we think we need more success, more love, more money, more prestige, more friendship, more meaningful work? Instead of just tolerating or improving situations, we often start thinking irrationally about ourselves with should statements and labels. And that can cause a lot of anxiety and depression, which is essentially non-acceptance of self. So to stop depression, we don't need to necessarily change our circumstances to get those validators. We need to stop thinking irrationally about ourselves. We need to learn how to accept ourselves unconditionally. But we resist stopping thinking irrationally about ourselves, and sometimes we can kind of just stay stuck in that depression. Even when attempting to treat the depression, we can find ourselves becoming a little resistant, like an outcome resistance or an, a process resistance. Do I really want to get better? There's a, a program that we use, a tool that we use in SMART, self-management and recovery training. It's called the cost-benefit analysis. And sometimes when we find ourselves stuck in a thinking part pattern, it, it's really helpful to take this equation, and it's a four-quadrant equation, a cost-benefit analysis, to take a look in writing because it's very important to look at something in black and white. And when we engage our senses, when we've got our eyes and our, our tactile arm and uh, hand writing, there's something transformational that can sometimes click in our psyche with that. So we take this four-quadrant equation of cost-benefit analysis, and it doesn't have to be around addictions necessarily. I've done this exercise most recently with my husband who was struggling with the decision about whether or not he should retire sooner than later. So you take the cost and benefit of doing something and then the cost and benefit of not doing something. And what I've learned over the years of my sobriety is that I, I do this regularly in group uh, meetings because it's a very uh, effective and powerful tool for people to see done in a group setting to realize, first of all, that you're not alone, that we all suffer from these irrational thoughts. And it's, I kind of, you know, I'm a bit of a wordsmith when it comes to how we're using our words too. That word irrational doesn't sit well with me because when we're having the thoughts that are spinning out of control, they certainly aren't irrational to us at the time. They, they certainly seem rational. So I prefer to label things as instead of rational and irrational, as helpful, or unhelpful? Are the thoughts that we're telling ourselves moving us toward where we want to go, or are they moving us away from where we want to go? I often talk about my experience in 12-step uh, meetings like AA and NA. Uh, those programs saved my life. When I went into recovery in 2009, it was the, really the only model of recovery available. So absolutely, I wouldn't be here today without the 12-step programs. What I didn't like about it was having to sit around in a circle and introduce myself by saying, hi, I'm Tanya and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. 
it felt really heavy. I was already feeling so ashamed and depressed about my situation. And having to announce that to a group of strangers that I was an alcoholic and an addict just made me feel so much lower. And I didn't even think it was possible to get any lower than I was feeling. So I felt uh, I needed a change. And what I loved about SMART, self-management and recovery training, is that they don't encourage that we label ourselves. Labels, I think, belong on food. That's it. So now when I go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting, and I still do because I love the peer support that exists in those 12-step programs, I say, hi, I'm Tanya, and I am grateful to be sober. And I am, and it makes me feel good, and it makes me feel empowered and motivated. So it's really important to use language around life and recovery that is going to make you feel good. And it's all different because I've talked to people in 12-step programs about this situation. And they said, no, 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 I like, I like calling myself an alcoholic and an addict because it motivates me. I'm thinking, you know what? Great. Then keep doing that if it motivates you. If it feels good, then do that. As long as it's not becoming an unmanageable and hurtful thing to your life and your health, then absolutely keep doing it. So we've only got three minutes left. Oh my goodness, I could delve into this acceptance piece. I could go on and talk for hours about it. And I know that you're kind of rolling your eyes at this point thinking, hmm, okay, we've heard this before. How much longer are you going to drum on it? You know what I didn't touch upon is the Louise Hay mirror exercise and how important it is <laughs> to learn how to love yourself. And I started that journey in my recovery in 2009, looking in the mirror uh, with the encouragement of Louise Hay, rest her soul. Um, she is the founder of Hay House. She's left that beautiful legacy of Hay House Radio. And her book, You Can Heal Your Life, encouraged me to look in the mirror every day, put my hand on my heart and say, I love you and you're worth it. It took me a long time to get there because I did not love myself. It took weeks, if not months, to be able to do that without crying and sobbing in the mirror. So I encourage you to look in the mirror and say, I love you and you're worth it. And if you can't look yourself in the eye, people have said they can take a little picture of themselves as a child. And sometimes that helps them look in the mirror and at least talk to the child. So that's also a great idea. My wish for you is that you live fully, laugh often, love always, stay positive, be mindful about what you are absorbing into your mind, be the gatekeeper of your mind. I have authored a couple of books I would love to share with you, mindful wisdom from my philosopher dad, sage advice from a single father. My father was an extraordinary man and I wanted to leave him a legacy of greatness because he was extraordinary as a single parent struggling with his own addictions. So this is all about his advice. I used to jokingly call him philosopher dad when I was growing up. And this offers some mindful wisdom to navigate this often mindless maze of life. My second book I wrote during the pandemic uh, to help me stay sane. And I want it to be part of a series of a, my philosopher dad series. I want it to be at least a trilogy, but this one I set up as a journal with an inspirational message for every day. So I encourage you to uh, not only buy my book, but uh, this Daily Wisdom book, how about writing your intentions and thoughts for the day? Because I have found in my own recovery journey that the power of words is powerful, but the power of the written word 
is life transformational. At least it has been for me. I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes from another extraordinary man, Viktor Frankl. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. May the force be with you. And remember, you are the force.